the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Lou Holtz is a winner. He's won 249 college football games, three conference championships, 12 bowl games, and a national championship. He's been coach of the year numerous times. He's a member of the College Football Hall of Fame. He was even awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by the President of the United States. Now, that's all impressive, but more impressive to me is that he's done all that and he's managed to win at life, not just on the football field, but off it. He loves Jesus Christ. He's He faithfully loved his wife. He loves his kids and his grandkids, and they love him, and he's still motivating and inspiring others. So, Coach, welcome to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. It's great to have you. Well, thank you. I'm flattered and honored to be on your show and have great respect for it. It was one of my wife's favorite shows. We're married 59 years before I lost her a couple of years ago. Well, Coach, maybe that's a good place to start because, you know, we all know you prowling the sidelines and on ESPN and, and uh, you know, X's and O's, uh, but other X's and O's are more important in life, and that's the love love of our life. And, um, you know, you were married, as you said, just shy of 59 years. Um, how are you doing? I mean, it's to lose a spouse has got to be so painful, and it's been a few years now, but how, how are you holding up? Well, it's very, very hard. And, and what happens, though, over time, the grief turns to gratitude. You know, after a couple of years, you start thinking about the great things about the other spouse and what you did. And, and you become grateful that I had 59 years with her. And she was just a tremendous mother and grandmother. Mm. Well, how, how did you meet? Could you take us back to when you first met her? Uh, well, as, a, as my son used to say, you want to make God laugh, you tell him what your plans are. <laughs> and that was the same thing. I I never had a date in high school, and she went with a good friend of mine, and I got out of high school, went to college, fell in love with a girl. That didn't work out. Uh, she went to great technician school, and when I was home over the summer, we started dating. And uh She's just a wonderful person. We're going to get married when I get out of the Army. But when I got out of the Army, she decided she didn't want to get married. She wanted to date her own boyfriend. And I was so mad. It was like July 9th, about 9.30 at night. So by 10.30, I had my good friend, Nevis Stockdale. We were about 52 Ford Fairlane. I drove all night to Iowa. I wanted to get away as far as I could. And that's when Nevitt made a great observation. He said, Beth and I had a love-hate relationship. He said, you love her and she hated you. And I think that was true. But in any event, we, we finished second in the country. My mother worked at the hospital with Beth. Beth kept saying, have Luke call me. And I refused to do that. 
And that's when women did call Ben. And, and she called me and we started visiting. Who knows, we got married July 22nd and uh, turned out to be the best thing ever happened to me. She's definitely a great wife, but she, she was a very religious person whose values were mm. great. Yeah, you, I know she uh, had a huge influence on you, and and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. But let's go back a little bit even before that, because you know you your childhood is kind of an important thing. You were born on the feast of the Epiphany, uh, a wise man on a wise uh, on a day of wise men. Uh, what what's your earliest memory as a child? I'm curious. Well, uh, the earliest thing I remember, and may not be the first thing I remember, but certainly the most impactful was we lived in a basement uh had one bedroom for my sister myself and my parents a kitchen half bath the half bath did not have a tub of shower and sink my father had a third grade education he was a wonderful man served five years in the navy during world war ii but one night he went out and he gambled and it came home and it was a sunday morning i'll never forget but my mother had us ready for church and she said, Andrew, it's time to go to church. He said, I'm tired. She said, Why well, need money for the for for the collection? And he said, Well, the, the, there's money on the counter. I had a good night winning at poker. My mom took every cent and put it in the collection basket because <laughs> she didn't believe in poker money. And that was the baddest I've ever seen my father yet, I think. But I remember that very vividly. I must have been maybe four years at the time. Wow. Wow. And your dad was a, if I remember from your book, your dad was a bus driver. Is that right? That's what he ended up doing uh, eventually. He worked odd jobs, you know, during the Depression. Remember this, in 1937, when I was born, we were right in the middle of the Depression. There was no welfare, no food stamps, no safety net. Uh, but I always said I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth, not because what we have, but because what I was taught, it doesn't matter where you, how, how much you have, you know, we never had all the luxuries or anything else, but we had love, we had understanding, and we had a commitment to the Lord and a commitment to one another. Mm. Well, we, you know, we know obviously the huge impact a mom and a dad has on a child. And I think obviously one of the main challenges we face these days is so many kids don't have that what used to be accepted as normal is now considered a luxury. Who who would you say had more of an impact on you, your mom or your dad? Who are you closer to? I, I think my mother, uh, like most people, for age uh, 7 to 12, my father was in the Pacific World War II. We lived with my mother's parents at that time. But my mother was uh, a, a wonderful person, a very religious person. But she also was very insecure and always looked at the negative things about life. That's the only thing. She wasn't a very positive person, but she was a great mother, and I learned so much from her. My, my father, unfortunately, because he was in the Navy for five years during the formative years, never had an awful lot of relationship with him that respected. When he didn't get out, he had to work a lot of different jobs and try to support the family. But he, he was a good person. I always be indebted to him. He taught me several things. But the one thing he taught me, we'll take care of you when you're young. You take care of us when we're old. And, and we certainly did that. Mm. That was an obligation to, to do that. 
So they lived to see your success as a coach? Well, I don't think it's uh, – my mother had a stroke at age 62 and, you know, incapacitated her, but she didn't see the success. My father, we had some success, but not the type of my entire career, et cetera. And that's not my truly regret because all the experiences we had as as a family – would have been great if he could have been part of it, but unfortunately he died at age 64 also. Hmm. Well, you've outlived your parents by a lot. That's uh... Uh, Unfortunately, my birthday <laughs> candles cost more than cake. So. <laughs> well, I know a lot of people are happy about that. Um, I'm curious, of all the professions you could go into, I mean, I'm sure as a kid you loved sports and you obviously played, but why a football coach? I mean, you could have done a lot of things. You You could sell ice to an Eskimo probably. Um, why did you choose to be a football coach? Well, you really don't choose it. It sort of chooses you. Uh, none of our family had ever gone to college on either side. And I'm a very poor student in high school because it wasn't important to me. I wasn't going to college. I had four ambitions. I wanted a girl, a car, a, a $5 bill, and a job in the mill. I never had any, but that's all I wanted. Get a job in the mill and Lived my life happily ever after. In my junior year, my high school coach, Wade Watts, came up and explained to my parents he thought I should go to college and be a coach. Now, he later told my wife, he said, when I said go to coach and college and be a coach, I, I didn't mean Notre Dame. I meant high school. But because of that, I had also worked well in high school and saved my money. I was going to buy 49 Chevrolet. And once he came up, visited us, my parents decided I should take that money and go to college. College wasn't, educated, wasn't expensive then as it is today, but I had no desire to go to college. They said, you're going to go to college. I said, I'm not. So we compromised and I went. That was a typical compromise with my parents. You did what they wanted you to do. And because my grades were so poor, but my dad paid state income taxes, the university had to give me an opportunity of one semester in college to prove whether I could do the work academically or not. So I wasn't a very good student, but fortunately, my sophomore year, I had an English teacher named Thunder Dunlop, who was a very demanding teacher, and I wrote her so many thank you letters because she really was a great teacher. In fact, she didn't care whether you liked or not. She cared whether you learned English or not. And I was able to read and write and express myself because of her. So that's how I ended up in college. What you go to college? What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to be a coach. I, I played football in college. I wasn't a particularly good one. But uh, at the end of my junior year, I had a knee operation. It didn't heal in time. And so when I came back from my senior year, they had me coach the freshman team. And I must have done a good job of that because I was an officer in the Army as an ROTC. I go in the military when I get out. My college coach, Trevor Reese, had been in the Navy with Forrest Evashevsky, who was head coach at Iowa. And he got me a graduate assistant. And I, I wasn't going to go there. I was going to go uh, work for a guy named Earl Beater, been at Conneaut High School, teach history, and be a backfield coach. And uh, after my wife broke up with me, as I said, I wanted to get as far away as I could. I went to Iowa. We finished second in the country. And because of the graduate assistantship, and that's how I ended up in college rather than high school. Wow. Well, it worked out pretty well for you. I 
you, you've always kind of you've been known as a motivator, uh, you know, someone who obviously does the you know rubber chicken circuit. Um, did you have uh, you know heroes as a kid who were orators, people who could motivate speakers? I mean, did you listen to records? I mean, like who was your inspiration to to become who you became? Well, I, I really didn't have any. When I was growing up, Johnny Lujak was one of my heroes. He was a quarterback for Notre Dame and turned out to be one of the finest people I ever met. We became very good friends after I ended up in Notre Dame. I love Stan Musial from Denora, uh, Pennsylvania, because he played for the St. Louis Cardinals with my name, Lewis. I became my favorite team, et cetera. But I, I think the real heroes are, are your family, the people around you. I, I never thought in terms of achieving this or doing that at, at a younger age. As a matter of fact, my high school just uh, dedicated a sort of a statue of me. And the reason they did it, as they explained to me, is because when I got out of high school, I, I, I was a real nerd. I, I mean, yeah, I played football, but I didn't belong to any clubs. I was a class officer. I wasn't involved in the activity. And they wanted this in the high school auditorium so that it would serve as an inspiration of people that it's never too late to change your mind. Now, once I went to college, and the only thing that changed you from where you're today to where you'll be five years from now, the people you meet, the books you read, and the dreams you dream. And I, I later, once I got into college coaching, I asked me to speak at different Kiwanis clubs, et cetera. And I, I didn't know much about speaking. I had one speech class my entire life. I was speech one-on-one at Kent State. I got a C in that because I worried about hand gestures. I just have something you want to say and a burning desire to say. That's all speaking is. Anybody can be a speaker. I never looked on myself as being a speaker, but it was after the success we had in, in college, you know, like when we beat Oklahoma, they're number one in the country. We beat them in the Orange Bowl. After I suspended three athletes, I scored 78% of our touchdown. We became a huge underdog, but we won that game because we focused on what we had instead of what we did have. Everybody focused on the athletes we lost. But once we turned our focus and attention to the people we had that would be playing, the whole attitude changed and we beat Oklahoma 31-6. Because of that, people wanted me to come talk to them about how we did that. And so that that's how the speaking turned around. But above all, I always felt I had the obligation to do God's work, uh, well, God put me in a position to influence people that I certainly ought to do that in, in the right and proper way. Hmm. Well, you certainly met that obligation. I mean, going to Notre Dame, I know you had the Notre Dame clause in your contract, right, when you were at Minnesota. Um, I mean, what was that like for you when you when that finally came about? I mean, here you're probably thinking like that's like the pinnacle of coaching opportunities. And here you are and you find yourself in South Bend. I mean, Take us out. What was that like to walk onto that field, to walk into that locker room for the first time? Well, when, when it happened, you, you could say to yourself, wow, here I am. Because you felt you had an obligation to make sure your football team lived up to the standards that Notre Dame had had. But how I ended up at Notre Dame was really weird because Minnesota was trying to hire me and a guy named Harvey McKay. And, and when my family and I had four children, but only two of us were there. We couldn't decide whether to take the job or not. They wanted a decision. 
So we're in a penthouse, and I sent our children and my wife into three different bedrooms. I went into another one, and we prayed. And we prayed for a half hour. We came back out, and all of a sudden there was a pace and tranquility. But somewhere along the line, I said, I, I, I don't feel comfortable accepting the job unless there's an everyday clause. Now, the reason I had said that was Gene Corrigan was the new athletic director of Notre Dame. He had tried to hire me three times with his athletic director University of Virginia. And I felt, well, Minnesota lost 17 straight games. The average score was 47-13. If we turned this program around, that, that would be great. And so as part of the Notre Dame plus, we had to accept a bowl bid first at Minnesota before I was free to go. And nobody thought by my second year we would be Clemson in the uh, in the Independence Bowl down in Shreveport, I think it was. So it's just how things work itself out. But all of a sudden, you're at Notre Dame, and, and I just never felt that I was special or anything different about me. But I also feel that leadership is where you set the standards, that we're leaders of our children, our family, maybe a business, or whatever it is. But if you're a leader, the most important thing is the leaders is set high standards for people and show them how to achieve it. And, and so I was blessed in that respect. Uh, I, I never wavered. I had a faith in God. and It was great being at Notre Dame. I could go to confession about any time during the day. I could go to 6 o'clock mass at the crib there and, and still get to the office in time. So it was just a great experience for me because I can express my faith in God and not have to worry about the ATLU called the president complaining about my, my, my feelings. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> wow. Where you, um, you had a good relationship with father Ted president, long time, his, you know, iconic president of the school. Can you talk a little bit about that? Father Hesburgh uh, hired me and, and I'll never forget. He said to me before we went to the press conference, he said, coach, in a little bit, I'm going to announce to the world you're the head coach at Notre Dame. I cannot announce to the world you're the leader of the Notre Dame football team. And he said, I can give you the title because that is comfortable up, but the players will determine whether you're a leader or not. I said, how's that? If you have a vision where you want to go, plan how you're going to get there, you lead by example, you hold people accountable for the decisions they make. Wherever we are in this world, this is very important, good or bad, going to be because of choices we make. You choose to do drugs, jump out of school, join a gang, get tattoos from head to bottom. You choose to have difficulty in life, and please stop blaming me for the choices you made. And so all of a sudden, I go to Notre Dame, and, and Father Hesburgh was a brilliant individual. But he also had a president or a priest who had been friends for years, named Father Dead Joyce. And Father Ned Joyce was in charge of athletics, and I, I dealt with him more than I did Father Hesburgh. However, when they retired, and they asked if we could have dinner together. And so we had dinner down uh, at this restaurant on the 11th floor of the Hilton, or that overlooked the Notre Dame campus. And we would have, for 10 years, we had dinner. My wife and I, Father Joyce and Father Ted. And the typical dinner would be, they would ask me about football. We did it in the fall. We did it in the spring. And I would explain 
about our team and the prospects and the problems, etc. Then I would ask Father Hasberger questions, and three and a half hours later, after we got done going through Father, uh, going through President John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, the Pope, etc. First half, I said, "Why didn't you make Notre Dame coeducational?" He said, "I wanted Notre Dame to be a great academic institution." I didn't feel we could do that if we eliminated one half the most talented people in this world. Father Hesburgh was a brilliant individual. His library on the first two floors are study area for the students, and that's being named on the on September 23rd. They're going to dedicate that to my wife. Wow. And uh, she loved Father uh, Hesburgh, he was just a brilliant individual. I can't tell you the positive influence he had on my life. And those dinners are things that I cherish. It was just the four of us. So you'll be back on campus for that dedication? Yeah, we, we go back. And what, what happens is when I left Notre Dame, the players decided they wanted to start an organization actually called Holtus Heroes. Everybody had played for me. So they come back for one game every year, and it'll be the Ohio State game this year. And the, my family will be coming back for the ded dedication of the first two floors of the Hesburgh Library. But we, we, we have a mandate is to take care of former players. You know, we've had uh, maybe 18 players die. Mm. And, and so when somebody dies, a former player is assigned to that family. And the main obligation is to make sure the children have all the academic the utensils they need for school, but more important to make sure their children understand what a special person their father was, what a great athlete, but more important, what a great teammate. Players come and go, teammates last a lifetime. So Notre Dame is only given the uh, their volunteer uh, uh, of the year award to one organization in its history, and that was the Holton Heroes. Wow. Well, that's fantastic. You know, Coach, one of the themes that I see emerging from even this conversation and then your life, what choices mean a lot to you. I mean, the way you emphasize, uh, the, you know, the importance of the choices we make. You wrote about this. I love the story in your book uh, that you wrote about marriage. Uh, you talked about when you and your wife were trying to decide, you had very little money and you were trying to decide whether to buy oh, peanuts yeah. or a Mitch Miller. Can you talk, I mean, just the, the what's behind that is profound. It's a simple I hard to story, remember but... like it happened yesterday. Uh, we were down in Newport News. It was over the Christmas holidays and we had just such little money and she wanted to buy some peanuts. She loved peanuts. I wanted to buy a Mitch Miller album. And we couldn't decide what to do. And finally, I said, well, you know, the peanuts will be gone by midnight. Mitch, Miller, Mitch Miller's album will last us for many, many years. So we ended up buying it. But every time we played it, we thought about that we, we could have bought peanuts instead. And my wife and I had a lot of different things that we did. Nothing real. Like, like every night, at 10 o'clock, no matter where I was, I would think about her. And if possible, I would call her. And that was 10 o'clock local time. I wanted her to know I was thinking about her and her about me. So even if we couldn't call, 
at 10 o'clock, we were together mentally. As I would say to her, it's the same moon. You go look at the moon. I'm looking at the moon. We may be 100 miles apart, but we're always looking for things that bring us together and hold us together. Mm, that's beautiful. That's that, Boy, if couples were to embrace that, there'd be a lot more happy marriages in this country. Um, Another great story that I love you tell is your goal. You know, you're a very goal oriented guy. I mean, even as a young man, you sat down one day and, and wrote out some goals. Can you talk about that? Well, I had never really had any goals. You know, I remember uh, the nuns wanted to know what you want to be. I want to be a lawyer, a doctor, a police. I want to be a garbage collector because they only worked on Tuesdays. I thought, boy, that's what I wanted. But then all of a sudden, I, I get into college and I still didn't have an awful lot of goals. And I go to the University of South Carolina to a guy by the name of Marvin Bass. My wife's eight months pregnant with our third child, Kevin. And we're, we're there one month. And I pick up the paper, and the headline of the paper reads, Marvin Bass resigns. I said to my wife, I wonder if he related to my coach. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm unemployed. And I didn't know Paul Diesel, who they hired, didn't know him in South Carolina. So I'm unemployed out of a job. And we're going to take a break, and when we come back, you'll hear the final few minutes with Coach Lou Holtz. You're listening to What a Life with Paul Petura on KGFT 100.7. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. <laughs> 